Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. So welcome everybody and welcome to another one of our Practice Manager Update webinars. I'm Louise Greenwood, Director of Education. And I'm delighted to be joined by our team of Lisa Harding and Michelle Lombardi, our Directors of Primary Care, and Dawn Childcraft, our Deputy Director of Primary Care. Um, and particularly today, we've got um, Adam Porthentucket joining us. Adam, it's always good to see you. So Adam is our kind of voice of reason as far as information governance goes. He's very, very helpful to us, very independent and gives us sort of helps us unpick um, various bits of guidance that come through. So we're going to start um, this morning on looking at online access. Um, and just to remind you, as ever, this is being recorded. So hopefully that's going to be useful for you. And I know a number of you listen to it perhaps possibly on your way home after work. Um, and um, it is helpful for you to have this recording. So it will be recorded as a podcast that you can listen to audio or we'll record it as a webinar also um, as we've got some slides today. As ever, please use the Q&A box. This is really for my own sanity so we can just monitor the um, questions coming in in one form rather than having the chat box open as well. So if you can just use the Q&A box, that's really helpful. And we're going to share some slides and start off with um, online access. And I think Lisa Harding, I think you're going to um, lead us through this, this, this section. Thank you. Yeah, um, thank you, Louise. So are you happy to share the slides for me? That's great. So I'm just going to run through a few quick slides around what we know so far about the patient online um, access to GP records. So if we could move on to the first slide, um, just to recap really on where we are. So just a reminder initially on the practice obligations on your contractual obligations, um, because they have changed over the years. So from April 2020, there isn't um, a contractual obligation to offer perspective access to all patients unless exceptional circumstances apply, which might be, for instance, there are things like safeguarding issues within there, or you consider it um, very inappropriate for a, a, a patient to have access. Um, if the patient requests access to full record, the practice is required to provide it. Um, we know that there is reduction software out there um, and it is available, but we don't believe it's uniformly used or funded. So that is an issue. So some of you will perhaps be using IGPR or EMR um, in your practices. And it'd be good to get a bit of feedback from you during the webinar on, on those systems and how you use them and, and which sort of levels you use. Um, the the regulations are only applicable if functionality is in place. Um, as I said, the go live is was to be in April 2022. We didn't have a specific date. We heard yesterday from the BMA that they are saying that that go live date has now been deferred to July. I'm just going to add a word of caution around that, that I haven't seen anything from NHSE to confirm that deferral. So I did have a quick look on the website first thing this morning and all the same April 2020 dates were on, in place. So I think we just want to get absolute confirmation that is correct. But that's what we're hearing from the BA, BMA, that it's been deferred to July. Next slide, please, Louise. So just a bit of um, background really on the figures. So perhaps not surprisingly, 54% um, of adults were registered for the NHS app as at January 2022. That's obviously a huge increase, really largely down to the pandemic and people want to view access things like their COVID pass. Um, there were 1.3 million repeat prescriptions ordered in November 21 and 8.9 million plus record views in November 2021. And you can see that those figures are increasing quite significantly um, over the last few months. 
So a bit of patient feedback that we've had from the national team. Um, we know that once people have got the NHS app, around 80% try to review their GP record. Um, and patients who've proved their identity often don't expect to have to do it again to access their record. So that's really a perception that's out there that actually once they've done it once, they shouldn't have to do it again. Um, some report mixed feedback. Some are saying that it's really positive. I've heard people say that they've moved surgery on a number of occasions and actually that access, that they've been able to access their records at each surgery with minimum fuss or difficulties. Others perceive a reluctance by practice staff and that really may just be not understanding what is required of them or practice staff feeling a bit nervous around what they should and shouldn't do. Um, so what are the concerns of the frontline, i.e. primary care, for what's been raised with us? So we know that um, opening up the record can be technically challenging and it requires a simple solution that I think everybody is clear on. Whilst there is quite a lot of guidance on the, the NHSE website and there's some useful FAQs, I think the devil is in the detail and people are, are concerned and really worried about getting it right. Um, Obviously, it's really important the GPs, the clinicians understand what is happening because that will affect inevitably how they input the medical record. So it's really important that that learning is shared across the team, particularly the healthcare team. Um, there are lots of concerns, and we would echo this, around the potential for record access to increase workload and risks around the management of sensitive data relating to things like safeguarding. Um, and we've, we've been very vocal in terms of feeding back. We've had a couple of meetings now with the national team, and we've really um, tried to highlight some of those concerns around actually this, this changes how people input onto the medical record. Historically, um, I think Andy would probably say that you know the, the record was an aid memoir for the clinician now it's becoming something potentially that the, the patient will view so you will input onto it in a perhaps different way um real concerns around what happens if you have patients where there are safeguarding issues what should you redact what shouldn't you how do you redact um also concerns raised by practices often practice managers raising on the, the national webinars that actually the name of the person inputting to the record will be visible now we've been told by the national team um, that that's a requirement of GDPR Article 15. We'll be interested to get um, Adam's view on that, but we're understanding that the name has to be visible. Um, in exceptional circumstances, we're told there are workarounds. So we were given an example where a clinician was being stalked by another clinician and, and they went through a process to hide their name on the record. So it can be done, but we understand it's not very easy. So just two, two slides really uh, left on what we know so far. So patients will see information only once it's filed onto the clinical record. So obviously um, that's particularly pertinent where you might have the results of something that you would want to make sure the clinician has spoken to the patient first before the patient can see it. So real concerns about things like cancer diagnoses and the importance of, of the clinical team being able to, sit, to speak to the to the patient before they see the record. Um, access can be denied or removed in exceptional circumstances, and you need to be able to justify that. Um, it's applicable to the GP record only, not other health service records, unless that information has been inputted onto the GP record. So if the community team, for instance, have a module um, on TPP, that won't necessarily be um, viewable by the patient. It will only be the GP's record. Um, on downloading the NHS app, patients will see information from the go live date unless that's hidden. 
um, practices should review information as it's entered onto the system and redact if appropriate. And what do we mean by full record access? Well, we mean the code and information, free text, consultations and documents. Um, I've touched on individual elements can be redacted or removed. Um, EMIS and TPP include the ability to redact as information is entered. Um, I should say vision is not in the same position, so vision is, will not be going live at the same same stages, EMIS and TPP. Patients moving practice will not have historic data, but full access from the time they register. Um, and again, we've raised this with the national team because we're anticipating that patients who've had access and move surgery um, will want to see that historic access. So we think that might generate some queries, um, but they would have to ask for it is our understanding. Um, we've asked the question around proxy access and we're told that this will remain the same. So if you had proxy access before switch on, you should still be entitled to proxy access afterwards. If you didn't have proxy access, then you'd need to apply for it in the normal way. Um, if patients with online access move practice, it's switched off. Um, our concern is that we don't think any redaction markers will transfer with GP to GP. So practices would have to go back through the record to check for anything. But we're just reminded that it's the prospective rec record unless full access is requested by the patient. Um, we were also told at a meeting by with NHSE earlier in the week that the when Lloyd George notes are digitised, those notes will be considered an historic record. So they won't necessarily be uploaded and then viewable. They are historic and therefore access would have to be requested. Um, and finally, the practice remains the data controller. Um, so I think that's probably it. I don't know if we want to pause for questions now or we want to sort of just pull in Adam, Michelle, Dawn and Andy for any comments or thoughts. Um, Lisa, before we go on, can, I'm very conscious you've got some quite a lot of new practice managers. So you just mentioned a few things. Can you just unpick what proxy access is, please? So that might be where you request access on behalf of somebody else, for example, a family member. Lovely. And redaction. What is redaction? Redaction. So we were, we were asked very politely by NHSE to say we shouldn't refer to hiding information. It's redacting. So if you don't think that a... Um, it's appropriate, it may do serious harm to an individual, you have third party information. And I'm going to look to Adam, who might want to expand on this, you can effectively hide, redact that information if it's not appropriate, if it's sensitive, or it relates to a third party. Okay, and what we're going to do is be very conscious that it's getting this message across to everybody, isn't it, and particularly clinicians. So we've got two of our GPs that work with us um, at the LMC. They're going to just record, one on TPP and one on EMIS, exactly what it looks like. This is the button you press and this is how you do it, and it's going to take like a minute at the, at the most. So as soon as we've got that done, we'll send it out to you, and please share that widely because that's just I think that's going to be absolutely crucial. Sorry, Adam. I was just going to pick up, I'm hoping you can hear me after my earlier technical problems. Um, I see not, that's good. Um, Lisa, you mentioned the point about obviously staff names and, and Article 15 of GDPR, which is the, the article that gives people access to their data. Um, and you're right, the fundamental principle is, is if an individual, and there are differences between what access request is and what this one access is, but an individual is entitled to see through the access to their data who has recorded their data, who the data has been entered by, et cetera. Obviously, there are, again, exceptions potentially. Um, if there was any threat of harm, should we say, to a, a member of staff from a, a person seeing who recorded data, you could exempt it on that basis, but obviously that is very, very exceptional circumstances. Um, but bottom line, an individual could ask, not through this route necessarily, but could ask for access to the audit trail if who's viewed their record and they'd be entitled to see it generally. 
Thanks, Adam. We've got a couple. Can I just request again, please put the questions in the Q&A box. It's just a lot easier for us to sort of manage them coming in. But we had a few questions coming in. Um, just one has come in saying, I joined late to the, this webinar. Is it right the, that it's being delayed till July? So that's as far as we know at the moment, Lisa, isn't it? So that's what we've heard from the BMA. We haven't seen formal confirmation from NHSE. So that's just with a, a bit of caution. Okay. Just, um, just to add to that, Lisa, yeah, I, um, a couple of my colleagues work with NHSE on some of the aspects of this programme. We have heard that as well from okay. NHSE. Thanks. But that, that's not confirmation because they've got a confirmation thing from Secretary of State. But certainly they're saying that's the case. BMA are saying that's the case. Let's hope that is the case. It's all sounding good. Absolutely. Um, so one question, we've had 76% of patients with access and latterly um, we've had a number who want changes to things in the historic record, but we can't do this. It would be helpful to have some further guidance for patients on this and I guess for practice staff as to how to explain this to patients and what the system is. Adam, I'm going to put that to you. Yeah, I mean, if there's something in the record current or historic that is, is queried by the patient, then the patient obviously has the right to query that. That's under the right to rectification. But of course, the, the difficulty in a lot of cases is proving what is right and what is wrong, um, particularly if it was recorded by a previous practice at that stage. So if the, the practice look at the record and believe the information to be correct, then you would not alter it. You just have to explain to the patient you believe this is, is correct information. I mean, this is kind of slightly outside this, this sphere at this stage, because this is obviously the the current access going forward, this program isn't covering the current, but the access going backwards. But obviously, as you say, some of you already have that. Um, so if they got access and there is something wrong, then there needs to be some form of correction in the system. It might be marked as an error and corrected, but if the question is actually, are they right about what's wrong, if you follow my logic there, um, then if the practice can't determine that, the usual method, as it would be with a paper record, is to annotate the record to say, the patient has a disagreement with this diagnosis or this this record in this particular way, so that the full picture is presented. And you wouldn't necessarily erase a previous error um, on the basis that obviously would raise the, the care that was given to that patient at that point in time. So it does have to be very carefully managed, but they, they say it's not absolutely right for the individual to have whatever they want written in the record in whatever way they want at all. Um, lovely to see you, Andy. So Andy Perkins joined us, our medical director. It's great to see you. Um, Andy, do you want to come on on this? I think you have quite strong views on this from being a working GP. And um, uh, yeah. Just want to comment on that? Yeah, I think strong views are an, uh, an understatement, really. I think it's a total disaster. And when we started with the medical record, it was made memoir, as, as um, Lisa said, and now it goes from being our RA memoir and our records to suddenly becoming the property of the patient. And, you know, I would query, well, what's the use of it for us then? Um, and similarly, if they're going to give a patient access to a GP record, why doesn't this apply to all other records, including secondary care? Um, I think it's really um, going to uh, potentially increase our workload, uh, especially in terms of queries, uh, as we've highlighted there, where patients disagree what's written in their notes, um, but also looking at redaction and potential um, potential harm to patients. You know, in, in the past, we were writing in notes um, without without uh, any uh, preconceived idea that a patient would ever have access to those notes. And suddenly stuff we were writing in good faith is now open to access from, by those patients. And I think that's really wrong. Um, and I think moving forward in terms of redaction, um, 
doctors are going to think very carefully what they write in the notes and valuable information may well be lost and I'm particularly concerned around safeguarding uh, or third-party information that could have significant bearing on the way that we um, support or treat a patient or um, or react to certain presentations and if that information is no longer added to the record for fear of the patient themselves seeing it um, then um, it, you know we're losing a valuable part of the record and I know that the safeguarding teams have got considerable concern and I think to say that they're going to delay it by two months is laughable considering the amount of concerns that have been raised directly with NHS X around this uh, and the lack of solutions for those concerns that have been raised. And the biggest concern we've got at the moment is even if we do redact or um, or bar stuff from online access, um, there's no guarantee that that barring or redaction um, will transfer by GP to GP transfer. So you potentially undo that as soon as you transfer the record to another practice which again has serious implications, especially in terms of safeguarding. <clears throat> We've got no guarantees from NHS England around that at all. So yeah, as you said, we met with them as an LMC office last week uh, and they le they were left uh, in no uncertain terms around our feelings and our concerns. And I would say that it's, it's a political uh, motive to uh, roll out this access rather than a logical one. Thank you, Andy. That's really helpful. We've got a few questions, particularly technical questions um, coming in now. So something in the chat from Oliver Walton. The GP record now holds other health service records as tabs, but shows in the full journal. Is that right? Can you confirm that? I'm sorry, I, I don't have, I don't actually know. And I probably, all I can say is, and I don't have the technical expertise, so I don't know if anybody else on the call can, can chip in, but we were told that it's only what's in the GP record that is viewable if it's in another module then it won't be so if it's in the community module it won't be it's what's literally on the gp red record thanks yeah so so where we can see those modules they won't be able to see those modules but it's important when you're release, releasing copies of records that you don't copy other organizations modules so for instance in system one i've got a number of different modules that i can see i can see the community team modules i can see the district nursing team modules um uh, and um, i don't have any right to release any of their information but my understanding is that when you print out that stuff we only print out the gp record anyway it doesn't automatically print out that but you've got to be very careful about not disclosing anything that's written in those modules, either verbally or in writing, because actually that's not our record. It's complicated, isn't it? Um, he goes on to say, um, access is only from date of registration because redaction tabs don't come through. Does this mean a newly registered patient cannot access their full historical record ever? We were told that at the moment they are not prioritizing historic access. But what happens is they transfer practice and all the stuff that they could see, which was prospective, but now is retrospective, is automatically blocked. And they can only see prospective information from the time that they register with the new practice. And if all of those tabs that, are, that redact safeguarding relevant information are not transferred across, um, Understandably, if the patient, which they can do, requests full access to a retrospective record, um, then um, someone has got to go through and reapply all of that redaction 
uh, all those redaction tabs and online access tabs. And another comment's coming about the governance around hospital letters and not just from hospitals. But we have a copy, but they are not our letters because they did not originate from us. So will patients have access to all of these hospital letters? I believe if they're on the record, GP record, yes, they will do. They become part of the GP medical records. So the patient has to, has the um, entitlement to access them, and the G, uh, and the secondary care have to um, send those letters to us in the knowledge that the patient can have access to them. Actually, good practice within the hospital um, is recommended that the patients are always copied into hospital cor- correspondence. Um, but we all know that there are letters sent to us by um, hospital staff that can contain sensitive. Uh, information and information that could be potentially harmful to the patient but at the end of the day we we haven't got the capacity to go through every hospital letter and start redacting that sort of information and again third-party information is is held within some of those letters in the record there is the ability to um, redact an entire letter uh, on on emis and system one i think but again from a practical point of view, I'm not going to go through every hospital letter when I'm looking at a patient record. Um, a few more questions coming in. Um, I recall that there are, current, there are current pilot sites for record access and the national team were asked if it's possible to share learnings and the protocols created. Would the LMC take this forward as nothing has been received? Now, it was interesting, we had our meeting um, last week with NHS England and we did discuss, didn't we, learning points and protocols and uh, test sites. Lisa, do you want to feedback on that? Um, I can, yes. Um, Michelle and I were at a subsequent meeting this week, actually, with the, with the same team, but a different um, different member of that team who I, who has given us a little information just around sort of numbers, etc., within the pilot sites. But I, th- I think we could probably go back and ask if they're prepared to share anything. So he's happy to to I think work with us. So happy to pick that up. That's good. That's a good point, Andy. Oh, did you want to put your hand up? Yeah, just to say, we specifically asked them if they'd actually undertaken an impact assessment, both in terms of workload and um, uh, cost to practices, uh, and they were not very reassuring with their answer. No, and I think there was still testing going on, but I think that sadly, even though at that stage it was still heading for the 1st of April, um, nothing had been resolved or published. So moving on to um, other um, concerns about this when you redact or hide it will remove the whole entry but maybe only part will be sensitive or contain third-party information surely the patient may look back and wonder why this particular entry isn't on their record the suggestion is the gp will have to put two entries which is completely unworkable so one's not sensitive and one is sensitive but that feels madness yes and we've raised that sorry tori i'm not sure we can say anything else i don't know adam do you have anything other than no, well, even I mean, the question highlights the sort of the yeah. procedural difficulty against the technical difficulty, doesn't it? That if the yeah. technical option is blanket all, then you are over 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 redacting. I shan't use the word blanking or hiding. Um, yeah, so it, it's just not a very fit for purpose sort of approach. And you were telling us that people within your team are working with NHS England a little bit on this area. Is there any influence they can bring to this, Adam? Oh, I wish. Um, I mean, it's certainly been, we've been very careful in terms of taking any work related to this on, on the basis that it is so such a hot potato, if I use that term. Um, 
Not really. I mean, the work that's been done is the DPIA Data Protection Impact Assessment Practices can use because the practices as highlighted by Lisa's presentation are controllers of the data on this basis. Um, and this is potentially the sort of area where a DPIA would be required to bonkers if every practice did their own. So there is a template one of those being worked on, um, highlighting some of these risks that practices can choose to accept or not accept. I mean, they, I guess there is the option for a practice basically to say we, we're not going to do this as a contractual breach, I guess, at that point in time. Um, but this, the other thing to highlight on, on this respect, I guess, from the data protection GDPR perspective, this technically is not subject access. Um, it's very related to it and has a very similar sort of pattern to it, obviously, in terms of the information going from a date forward, not, not the full record, but it's not deemed as a, for patients to have this online access is not deemed a subject access request because it's not providing them with a permanent copy. Um, and it's not the historical data either, which they have the, the entitlement to. So whilst patients may say we want that sort of access, if practices are a bit reticent to give it to them, it's not, they couldn't force your hand by doing it as a subject access request. You do that in a different way. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Thank you for sort of spitting out those two, Adam. Um, Sana carries on, it's increasing workload already and it's very difficult for a practice to be put in the position of having a patient arguing about something that happened at a different practice. Recently, the few patients have wanted something removed as it changes their insurance costs. And this feels like a little bit of work that actually practice managers shouldn't be doing, shouldn't have to be doing. I yes, I'm not sure. I think yeah. we, we, yeah, absolutely recognise that. Just, just some observations on that one. Um, obviously, if this is, if they're looking at data that is in the previous practices record, then through this process, they won't see that. Because um, obviously, this is, currently, this is going forward, and if Andy has already highlighted, they move practices, they only see what the new practice records, not the bit that's in between. Um, but the, I guess the other comeback on that is actually one of the, assuming the original practice recorded it in good faith and it's probably accurate and appropriate and everything else as well so it can't be removed just on the whim of the patient even if they don't like that. Andy? But Adam what we're talking here is prospective access through the NHS app. A, yeah. a patient can still request full online access to their entire record retrospectively by request. So so when they can't have access to that moving to the new practice via the NHS app, then a, a significant proportion are then going to go and request it formally um, for online access through through the other route, aren't they? So so they will have access to their retrospective record and they will want amendments to that record where they disagree with what's in it or they don't like what's in it because it affects their insurance. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question is, is it just an amendment to say that actually there's a disagreement here or is it an actual error correction which you guys not having the historical data wouldn't necessarily be able to do? Helpful. Um, and so just goes on to say, depending on the file structure of the hotel of the hospital correspondence coming into the system, it doesn't always work to open the letters and redact the letters. And it's just, I think there's quite a lot of technical things with the clinical systems that they're not really fit for purpose at the moment to do what, um, yeah, the guidance is suggesting. And I think that's the feeling we're getting. And thank you, Jenny. You've said you've sent in some um, screenshots for emails that has turned on the redaction in case it's useful to share. I'm sure it will be. Thank you very much. We'll certainly pick those up and put them out in this. That's the end of the questions. Is there anything else, Lisa or Adam, you'd like to share or reassure us about? 
there's more reassuring messages we could give it's difficult isn't it i mean all we can say we, we are listening and please do you know sh sharing this is, is really helpful for us and as i said we have we have had a couple of robust meetings with the teams that are um rolling these out um so the more feedback we can give them the better and um, we just try and make sure but if it is something that's imposed in july we will try and make sure that it's um we make it as practical as possible um so steve baxter has just put a comment in the briefings that have seen refers to pilot sites not seeing much increase in workload but it's never been quantified um, and actually which sites are being used do we know are they small sites big sites rural sites urban sites we don't know do we i don't think we've got they're a mixture of urban and rural. Okay. Um, we do have the figures. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have them to hand. Um, but yeah, we do have some figures. I guess the other bit around not much increase in, in workload. Whilst we've been reassured that um, this won't be heavily promoted, uh, we were told by the national team that, that the patients will be informed that they have this, they will have this ability to access records. So I don't think they're planning a huge campaign to let people know that this is going live, but I think there will be information available so it, it whether it's something to do with people just don't realize at the moment i don't know it's just difficult to say isn't it okay so we will just keep we reassure we'll keep people informed as much as we can thank you adam adam from csu really helpful to have you with us um and um as i say it, it's just helpful to help us unpick these sort of tricky situations so i think we'll move on from that topic there so thank you adam and we'll see you again very soon no doubt so that's something completely different now. I think we're going to go on to flu. Dawn, I think you've got a little update for us, please. Hello, thanks, Louise. Yes. So I'm sure most of you know and have seen um, NHS England did actually put out the uh, letter for the reimburse, reimburse, <laughs> reimbursable vaccines and the eligible cohorts for this year. Um, and, and I suppose the big headlines from that letter is that it's going back to the pre-pandemic cohort eligibilities um, and as such in particular those aged between 50 and 64 this year aren't included um, unless of course they're in the at risk group in which case slightly different cohort but if you have ordered on the basis of thinking of your 50 to 64 year olds you might want to just revisit um, that order that you've placed and just check on do you actually need as much as you think we've ordered? Um, the other cohort they're not going to be um, including this year, um, not that that will really affect practice, practices, is the secondary school children, years 7 to 11, that would have been done by the school teams last year. But nevertheless, they're not going to be included this year either. The other um, point to note, particularly we feel, um, is the return of the frontline healthcare and social workers cohort, going back again to the pre-pandemic um, uh, level, if you like, um, in as much as it won't include your staff, um, because that part, again, will go back to being an employer responsibility. So whilst frontline healthcare and social workers, as long as they're in the um, cohort uh, that are mentioned in the small, small print, if you like, which is the uh, residential care home and nursing homes um, or the uh, voluntary managed hospices, those care workers can come for their free flu jab. But your staff, your practice staff, I'm afraid that's going to return to an employer responsibility this year. Um, so that's the headlines for the moment, Louise, but I'm sure there's going to be more to follow. That. I'm sure there will be. Thank you, Dawn. Um, the flu never finishes, does it? It never sort of, it seems to sort of roll on and on and on. Um, we've got a few queries coming in. Um, 
on vaccines. So can we touch on childhood IMSS payments? It's, um, as it's now item of service cough and percentage uptake, it feels like there's quite a delay in income from childhood IMSS. Are you getting, are we getting concerns from other practices? Are we aware of a delay in payments at all? I'm looking for Lisa and Michelle as well as Dawn. Any, any idea about that? No, we haven't heard anything, Susanna, so just let us know a bit, perhaps a little bit more. We'll keep it now, but thank you for raising it because we'll keep our eye on that now. Michelle, you look like you might be... Yeah, I was just going to say, if, if practices are experiencing it, just to let us know and we'll yeah. raise it with the, the public health team. Brilliant, thank you. Um, Jan, do we continue to chase COVID vaccination status in staff or doctors who've not submitted their details yet? There was a slide, slide at last night's CCG, I think that's Hampshire meeting, suggesting we, was, we should be still having conversations to promote the COVID vaccine. So it's two things. There are sort of obviously conversations still happening. And do we continue to chase for vaccination status? I think that's a good question. I know that the guidance that the BMA put out, I think a couple of weeks ago now, suggested that you you should still be looking at it. And if you've got staff that are unvaccinated to undertake a risk assessment and put in place any relevant mitigation, I think we need to take this out and find a bit more detail as to what the guidance is for practices. And we'll share that with um, practices shortly. That would be helpful. Another question is coming about non staff who've not had um, the COVID vaccination. How do we proceed um, with nurses who are not vaccinated seeing patients now face to face as they've changed the role um, with telephone triage and, and yeah it's because of the end of the period I think people are obviously getting a bit concerned about that so we'll try and find out a bit more yeah well we'll, we'll approach BMA sorry Lisa cool. and I was just actually looking to Dawn I, I, I think Dawn you've updated our web page on risk assessments as well I think all the latest risk assessment guidance is on there as well isn't it Dawn yes I'm sure a- you Yes, <laughs> there is um, a link to two or three various um, uh, uh, organisations that um, have got risk assessment. The, the NHS employers is one, they've updated theirs, um, and also the BMA, um, and also it's the Society of Occupational um, Health uh, Medicine as well. Um, although they haven't updated theirs since the change to the vaccination um, for deployment not being an, uh, a criteria, but certainly, yeah, the BMAs on there and the NHS employers who have updated. Thank you, Dawn. And did you want to come in there? Yeah, just just saying that actually the that deadline for first vaccination or second vaccination obviously is irrelevant now because VCOD's no longer a condition of employment, but it's the risk assessment of someone potentially not having a vaccination, both for them and for the patient. Um, that you need to look at, I guess, in line with any other potentially infectious disease. Say, from a clinician point of view, someone that hasn't had hepatitis B immunisation, you know, are they fit to undertake work? Um, what sort of work are they, are, are they undertaking? It just leaves us with a, an additional occupational health headache, really, doesn't it? Yes, I think yeah. as an employer, you just have got to have been seen to... <clears throat> basically make sure that you've done everything you can to protect the staff member and the patients, inform the staff member of, of the risks. But if they choose to continue exposure-prone work, then, you know, it's, it's their risk that, that they're taking. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Um, just one about LFTs. Will we be getting free tests beyond the 1st of April? We've got none here now. Our staff are unable to access them via the website and don't want to pay for them. I think we're still waiting for that guidance, aren't we? Or, yeah, still waiting. Um, so sorry, Julie, we are still waiting and I'm sure there'll be more people wanting um, similar, similarly um, answers to that question. So um, 
Okay, I've just got another one more from Ben. Just put it, please put it in the Q&A. It's just much easier for me to manage it. If staff are not in the routine flu cohort, will NHSC still be undertaking the staff flu informed return? I suspect they will. It's, in, it's been in place every, most years. Sorry, Don, you're probably best to answer this one. No, 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 you go ahead, Michelle. Sorry. So I think it's been something that's been in place, hasn't it, for a number of years. I think they do like to have that information. So I suspect it will be, but we'll watch this space to see if any more information comes out. And if you are one of the practices who have ordered for the 50 to 64 group before the um, regulation, all these guidance came out, does anyone have any experience or know if Sequiris will, will change the order? This is getting very frustrating. So you I don't think we'll go back to Sequiris and ask them um, as a gesture of goodwill, whether you'll get very far. We don't know at the moment, but um, you can also co contact public health, public health um, department um, in your area or, or come via us and we'll approach for you if you want um, to see if we can um, find some other way um, of, you know, getting some help for you. But um, at the moment, it's, it's quite new. Um, and it looks like Sequiris have got a review waiting list. So, it, yes, you're not alone, but it's obviously a very frustrating and tricky situation to be in. Thank you for that. I think we'll move on to the contract changes now. I think, Michelle, you'll want to um, talk to us about that. So um, I think uh, the last practice managers webinar that we undertook a couple of weeks ago, I spent some time going through the details of the NHS England letter that came out on the 1st of March and just basically picking apart that, that information. As an LMC, we are just forming um, a response to this with our LMC comments, which um, will also incorporate the information that the BMA released last week, which we're going to talk a bit about in a second. So I think the two areas that practice are mainly um, asking for details on are the finance and also it, the other main concern being raised is around extended hours uh, and extended access being combined and the expectation that PCNs will take this on from the 1st of October. So it was really just to take both of those topics and just to, to go through them in a bit more detail. So I'm going to take extended hours uh, and extended access first. So uh, just to confirm, so the extended hours funding was £1.44 and the extended access funding is the £6 per patient, and which is a service that currently is commissioned by uh, uh, CCGs. What we have had confirmation of is that the combined funding for uh, for the new service from the 1st of October will be £7.46. I know the maths don't add up there. However, it's something to do with the uh, funding distribution uh, and how it's weighted. So the funding, uh, combined funding will be £7.46. We did hear on an NHS England website that there's money potentially coming from the global sum uh, and going into the service. We're still unpicking that and trying to find the detail as to as to where that what that will amount to and uh, what that relates to so also just to highlight that the requirements were six that uh, the hours were 6 30 to 8 p.m monday to friday and saturdays nine to five but actually when you read the specification it says between those so we would suggest that the practices and pcns have an opportunity to look at what they need doesn't necessarily mean it has to be those full hours it does say the words between or within so you have an option to look at that I think the main concern is that practices and PCNs are saying actually where are we going to get these staff from where is the workforce coming how are we going to do this this is this is a huge ask and we've got six months to implement it I think as I mentioned it currently the six pound per head and the so that's the extended access is actually a service that's commissioned by the CCG so there, there, there will be organizations providing this 
However, we understand it is variable uh, across the patch as to what, what's in place. Some, some practices provide it and some other organisations provide it. So we understand that the level of work uh, and the level of workforce will vary and it will be variable. Also, the um, six months to implement this and unpicking of the contracts, etc., is going to take time and actually resource. Uh, and we're keen to explore if there's going to be any support uh, for that from CCGs. So I think we're still unpicking this information, particularly around the extended hours and access. I don't know if Andy wants to talk a bit about this at all, but I think from us, we, we understand that this is, uh, as we said, a significant amount potentially coming up for the next six months to get it in place. I think the other thing to highlight, it doesn't actually state the length of appointments. It says the number of, obviously, the 60, um, the 60 uh, minutes per thousand, but it doesn't say the length of appointments. So it may be an opportunity for PCNs and practices to take back control of this, look at how it could uh, help with safe working uh, in, in, ge in general practice. So you could have maybe you're going to have you could have half an hour appointments for um, long-term conditions or complex patients and also it could look at possibly retaining the workforce uh, Andy I don't know if there was anything you wanted to add to that um, but actually that we'll also be working with CCGs to try and find a pragmatic solution uh, that uh, helps practice and PCNs implement this in the easiest if that is possible way um, to take it forward sorry Andy no, no, it's a great summary. Uh, I, I just echo that I can understand concerns, but there are also opportunities here as well. Um, uh, my main concern is the change in the wording in that PCNs will be expected to provide a range of general practice services during enhanced access network standard hours. Now, that sounds like mission creep to me, standard hours. You know, these aren't standard hours. These are extended hours uh, and extended access. Um but suddenly it's become standard hours for PCNs and PCNs are an extension of our GMS contract and our GS, GMS contract core hours are very uh, clear. So <clears throat> that's a concern to me. Uh, staffing workload, obviously that's a concern. Who holds the contracts and, and the complexities of transferring and managing those contracts is complicated. And then also the potential concerns around obligations of TUPI. If you've got a uh, an existing provider that then ceases providing this um, this service. I know in a lot of areas that it's been subcontracted out um, to community trusts at the moment. The opportunities obviously are that, again, in a lot of areas where it has been subcontracted out, the shifts haven't been filled and there's been a feeling that actually primary care um, hasn't benefited uh, as much from, from the services it could and it actually that the service has been used to fill deficiencies in out of our service and 111 so taking it back and taking ownership of the of the schemes and the opportunity and it's also an opportunity to be imaginative of, about how we deliver it as michelle has said there's nothing in any of the spec to say how many appointments you have to offer uh, or what type of appointments so uh, we can use a broad brush approach to staffing and it can be anything from uh, a doctor through to phlebotomy through to social prescribers uh, uh, it's meeting the needs of the patient through through appointments as you define them, really. And th those appointment lengths can be very much um, uh, up to you in terms of the, the length of those appointments. So there is the potential to uh, set a, a benchmark in terms of safe working 
uh, in terms of a number of appointments and the length of appointments. And that may well be attractive to staff that have been put off from working uh, and put off from doing a certain number of sessions. So it could be an opportunity to attract staff back into um, an area or, or a PCN. So as with anything, there'll be winners and, uh, and losers, but I think there are probably opportunities that we can, we can take from this, mindful that there's no funding coming from anywhere else to support us. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Michelle. Just one query has come in from Marie. Is a six-month time to plan only, or do we have to deliver extended hours, improved access hours? Please clarify what must be offered from the 1st of April. Assuming practice PCN sign up to both services. And what Marie has found is when she's asked this question, she's had different answers depending on who she speaks to. So from the 1st of April, we haven't seen the new service specification for the network days. I would assume it has extended hours within that already. So the requirement currently, that what, as is now, for extended hours will continue from the 1st of April to the end of September. So that would be for practices to undertake. And then she's asked about the um, improved access. So I'm assuming, again, the same principles will apply. Whatever is in place now will need to be provided up until the end of September. The actual new service, so the combined, the combination of both, has to be provided from the 1st of October, is my understanding. I think Andy's nodding, so I, th I think I've got that correct. But I've just I've got the letter in front of me. And it's PCNs will be required to provide enhanced access between the hours of 6.30pm to 8pm Monday to Friday. And it says from the 1st of April, uh, 1st of October. Yeah, so effectively you've got six months to plan. That's how you're going um, to deliver the combined service uh, and whether or not you will continue to use an existing providers or, um, or, or opt to deliver it in a different way. Because it would be totally unrealistic to expect us to just take it on from the 1st of April. Unrealistic, but these strange things have happened, haven't they? But yes, Marie, be reassured, it's the 1st of October. That's fine. Uh, just to highlight, the plan has to be with the commissioners by the 31st of July, with the final iteration agreed by the 31st of August. Right, so you can't, you can't sit back for too long then. That's not long, is it, to get that planned out, 31st of July. Thank you. Thanks, Marie, for your question. Thanks, Michelle. And do you want to go on to a little bit of finance now? So I think this is the information that everybody's been waiting for. I think I just need to be really clear. This is, oh, so this is the information that we have been given by the BMA and it is available on their website. This slide will be available with this podcast and we will put the link in um, on our website so you can access this. What we, as I've mentioned previously, we are pulling together a response from the, uh, with the, um, with the from the letter with LMC's comments on and we are going to incorporate the BMA view on this too so you'll have one document that have our comments and the BMA just for ease for everybody so let's just take these very quickly in turn so the global sum increase um, identifies it will be three percent which takes the um, global sum uh, weighted patient from 96 pound to 78 pence to 99 pound and 70 pence 
So just to highlight, I think on our previous uh, webinar, we identified that the under the five-year deal, the increase was going to be 2.5%. So we have asked the BMA as to why there is a difference. And we believe that there are additional elements being put into the global sum. One example of that is the subject access request money that was 20 million, was supposed to stop last year, so or supposed to stop this year. This was going to be the final year. It has been now carried over, which you'll see is mentioned uh, in one of the bullet points. So what we are going to be asking the BMA is to be really clear as to what the additional 0.5% is um, that we uh, that has been included, and we'll, we'll provide that to practices. Uh, but the cost per patient for this year is £99.70 per weighted patient. The out-of-hours adjustment remains at 4.75%, but has an increasing value from this year was £4.59, and it's going to £4.73. Quaff point value increases uh, 3.2% from £201.16 to £207.56, even though there are no changes in any uh, in most of the quaff. Uh, the reason for this is it relates to the practice um, at the average practice list size uh, has increased and therefore the cost of the point has also increased. So uh, we've mentioned about the global sum increase of 3%. The staff pay, so, the, so every, usually every year there's two, two figures. One is the global sum, and then the second part of that relates to the staff pay uplift, um, which identifies the costs associated with staff pay up, uplifts. And this year it's 2.1%. I have to say we are bitterly disappointed. This doesn't take into account the NI, um, the national insurance levy that's being increased this year. Um, however, the BMA have confirmed that the staff uplift is 2.1% and that we're awaiting. So every year, the DDRB report, um, it, usually in May, and it, we believe it's going to be May again this year, for the salary GPs pay uplift. And interestingly, the uh, DHSC have recommended 2% um, for, for this. We don't know what that's going to be. We await for the report um, being released in May, but it's just to highlight that that is a, another element that's ongoing. I've already mentioned the continuation of SARS funding in the global sum, which is supposed to have stopped this year, but has been included and recognised that the work still continues for this. And also to highlight that the investment and impact funds, the IIF, um, continue at £200 per point. And I think that's all we wanted to highlight. And just to say, we will. this information will be available on our website and we are going to issue a document that has our views and also the BMA uh, shortly, hopefully by, by this week. Thanks, Michelle. So just a comment from Jenny. So if the state staff pay uplift is 2.1%, does that equate to 1.8% plus on costs? Good question. We had this debate today at our team meeting and actually it's interesting. It's not necessarily saying that 2.1% is what you give staff. This potentially is the cost associated with giving staff pay, up, uh, pay increases. So I think we probably need to have a look at that in a bit more detail um, and come back to you, Jenny, and practices. Yeah, thanks, Jenny. Um, so there are no more questions. There's a comment from Jason. LFTs can be obtained online from the government website. The issue is delivery slots. Staff here, Jason's on the Isle of Wight, um, have been able to get them if ordered very early in the morning before seven o'clock generally. So hopefully that's helpful to you and those of you who are struggling to get LFTs. Right, I think that's probably it. Unless anybody's got anything else to share. Thank you very much, everybody. We've had 67 of you at, um, at um, the top. 
um, the top number um, coming in today. So that's a huge number. So thank you for joining us live. And we know a number of you will listen um, afterwards to the podcast. So thank you all those, for, um, those of you who listen to the podcast. So thanks again, Michelle and Lisa and Dawn. Um, Andy had to go off to another meeting. Finally, any more comments from anybody? Anything else anybody wants to share? Something, something's come in. Oh, Michelle looks like she might be wanting to say I something. just wanted just to comment mm. on the fact that the finance information around the contract relates to BMA have released this. We still await NHS England's information. That still hasn't been released. I just wanted to highlight that fact that this isn't from NHS England, it's from the BMA. That's useful. Thank you for clarifying that. Great. Thank you very much, everybody. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Um, I hope this has been useful and take care. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.